In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river Jordan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Morning, friends. Here's a quote from one of my favorite movies of all time. See if you know it. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. My kids love that movie. I love that movie. And if you're, uh, the reason I bring that up today is I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But if you're uh, sitting in, here we are, the second Sunday, or first Sunday after the Epiphany, and feel like life has moved pretty fast, you'd be on to something. Because just, just two weeks ago, we were talking about, or three weeks ago, talking about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and then last week, the wise men, and bam, here we go, man, catapulted 30 years ahead into the future with John the Baptist on the scene, Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, Ferris Bueller, that great theologian, that doctor of the church, was right. Life moves pretty fast. The interesting thing is, you know, people always want to know about Jesus' early life, and, and the reality is we don't really know a whole much, whole lot about it. What we do know, we know he was, went to Egypt with his parents when, before the, uh, so Herod couldn't kill him. We know he was in the temple teaching the rabbis when he was about 12 years old or so. And, then, and really, that's all we've got. If you ever hear anybody talk about the, the early days of Jesus, the only place we have that information is in the heretical Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels. And so um, there's one example, the Gospel of Thomas, which if you are curious, you could look at it. It's wrong and heretical and erroneous and historically inaccurate, but it's a little weird. Um, but the point I want you to see here is that we don't know really anything about Jesus' early life because, let's just say, it was probably just kind of boring. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but he is also, he is purely, fully God, but he's also fully man, right? And the interesting thing is, if you look at history of religious leaders, I don't care who you are, you know, Jesus really didn't do much, right? He didn't found a school of philosophy or start a soup kitchen or go out and heal people left and right. I mean, Jesus didn't even love the little children for crying out loud when he was younger. I mean, all these things we think about that somebody should do if they're a religious leader, quote-unquote, he didn't do any of it. What he did until he was 30 years old was really a whole lot of nothing. Until today. His baptism by John the Baptist. This is Jesus' big reveal, man. This is the moment when his ministry starts. 30 years old, he's baptized and, that may, and what makes it odd, of course, here's the thing, right? And I hope this kind of bugs you because it bugs John the Baptist too, right? That the weird part about it is that why is Jesus being baptized in the first place? If Jesus is, in fact, the sinless Son of God, the Word of God, God made man, away in a manger, born of a virgin, all that, why, is, why on earth is he of all people being baptized? It's a good question. In fact, John the Baptist, the guy who actually does the deed and baptizes him in Matthew's gospel, says, wait, wait, time out. It's not me should be baptizing you, but you baptizing me. John's confused also. So what's going on here this morning? Why is this Jesus' inaugural act? Two things. This is big. Why is his baptism the first thing he does? And what does that mean for you? Why is his baptism the first thing that he does, and what does his baptism mean for you? So, 
here's the question I want to dial in on today. Why is Jesus baptized in the first place? Well, there's two things going on here. First of it, the first part of it is that Jesus' baptism is not like your baptism. If you're baptized, I was baptized as a little, a little infant, a little baby, gurgling little baby boy, wiggling around, probably crying, who knows what happened. I don't remember any of it. Some priest, whom I also don't know who it was, baptized me and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's Christian baptism. Whether as a little kid or as a grown person, that is what happens in a Christian baptism. Original sin is wiped away. The Holy Spirit grabs hold of that soul, molding that person into the body of Christ. And here's the thing I want you to see. People dispute, well, why are you baptizing children? They can't even respond. Well, that's kind of the point, you see. Because when, in the process of Christian conversion, God always makes the first move, right? God always initiates the conversion process. It makes perfect sense. And the church has always believed in infant baptism because when we are baptized as children, it is God that acts on us. We cannot, whether you're a little kid or an adult, you cannot choose God without him first choosing you. But all that's to say, all that Christian baptism stuff is not what happens to Jesus. That is not what happened to Jesus. Jesus was not baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Instead, what Jesus gets at the hand of John, and it makes it even a little stranger, is something known as the baptism of repentance. It says it right there. John is in the, in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that people would go out into the desert, right, into where John was baptizing in the Jordan River, and a person would stand in front of everybody around and publicly admit, in full view of everybody in the company, what they had done wrong, that they had not lived a life in accordance with God's will, that they were, to use the Christian language, a sinner, but that they intended to live differently. They intended to change direction. That's what the word repentance means. You know, I, in my mind, maybe you share the same view, maybe not, but in my mind, I hear the word, when I hear the word repent, I picture a Baptist pastor going, repent! And the reason I picture that is because that happened to me once. <laughs> but actually, the word repent is actually a, like sin. It's kind of an innocuous word, right? Repent means change direction, right? You're going the wrong way. You know, you're holding the sign up. The bridge is out. You know, if you keep going, you're going to go off the cliff. Repent means you're, you're going the wrong direction. Change direction. Do the right thing. And here is the problem. El problemo. What in the world is Jesus, the sinless son of God, what is he repenting of? This is why John's confused. Like, dude, you're the sinless son of God. I met you when I was a six-month in utero infant, a fetus. You are the sinless son of God. Why am I baptizing you? Well, here's the thing. Stay with me. Jesus is not, baptizing, is not being baptized for his own sin. He's being baptized for yours. Say that again. Jesus is not being baptized for his own sin, friends, but for yours and for mine. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you repented of your sin? Realized, man, I blew it, and you intended to change direction. Whether you did or not, it's another story. But when is the last time you repented of your sin? Well, we'll do it in a minute, well, 15 minutes. 20 minutes, where the priest will pronounce absolution, will confess our sins together, 
Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I hope that as you're saying those words, you're actually drawing into your mind what those things are. And then the priest, in this case it'll be me, will pronounce absolution, forgiving you of your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we do it, right before we receive communion, the confession and absolution, the reason we do it there is so that we are in a state of grace, forgiven and ready to receive the body and blood of Jesus. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered how it works? How does, how does forgiveness work? I mean, it, how does this even, how does this God make this happen? Does God just wave his magic wand with a little sprinkle of fairy dust and make everything all better? Nope. God, God actually takes sin extremely seriously. And if you don't know, I'm going to give you one example. I won't give you all the details because it's a little rough. But there's a story in Numbers chapter 25. I was just reading about this this past week. A guy named Phinehas, right? The, uh, the Jews are in Numbers. They're getting ready to go invade the promised land. And one of the, one of the Jewish men, the Israelite men, is married with family. And he spots a Midianite woman. They are unclean. And he brings this Midianite wife into his tent. And it wasn't to play checkers brings her into his tent with his wife and his children there, and everybody watching this action of complete, uh, you know, rebellion against God. And Phinehas, the priest, goes into the tent, takes his spear, and goes, and spears them both through. And God says, that was the right thing to do. Now, why in the world would that be the right thing to do? The reason is, you see, God takes sin extremely seriously. Sin not only destroys our relationship with him. It destroys us. It destroys our relationship. And see, the thing is, if Jesus takes your sin from you, that here's the thing. God takes sin so seriously, and he wants to make sure that this sin is not visited upon you and me, that God has an ingenious solution, that he actually takes that sin upon himself. He repents in your place at his baptism. And you're thinking, well, that's, well, okay, but so what, right? I had a friend of mine once, we were driving in a car, my friend Chris Marino, I've told you this before, we are stopped behind a car, and he had a bumper sticker that said, Jesus died for you. And my friend Chris said, so what? Well, what is the so what? Well, let me ask you a question. You ever notice something? That no matter how hard you try, you fail. And I don't mean all the time, I mean, we sometimes get it right. Every once in a while, right? A broken clock is right twice a day, as they say, right? Never, every once in a while, we, we get it right. We do have little victories here and there. But eventually, you will break, and eventually, I will break. We do it because we're sinners. I mean, I'll ask you a question. It's, it's innocuous, but how many of you actually kept your 2020 New Year's resolution? How many of you are still, have still kept your 2021 New Year's resolution, right? We try. We have good intentions, we know we need to improve intrinsically, but when, we're, when we decide to make a change, are we always successful? And the answer is no. And here's the problem, you see. God wants to save us, wants to rescue us, but yet, but like, if you're like me, and you are, no matter how hard you try, you blow it. It's almost like, it's almost like, it's almost like you need someone to stand in your place. Someone who can keep the rules in your place when you can't. Someone who can repent perfectly and do the right thing even when you can't. Well, guess what? That is precisely what Jesus does. He presents us before God the Father, He represents you in your place, identifying with you and me personally. Not in your success, but in your failures. And the reason he does that, you see, 
is that he can free you from these burdens. So he can free you. You know, if you're the kind of person that, and, and, and you know, to make this on kind of a practical level, if you're the kind of person who harbors guilt or shame or anger or lack of forgiveness or all the stew that we deal with every day, let me just challenge you something. If you hear one thing today, one thing, take all that trash and give it to the Lord. He repents in your place. He offers you that freedom. Let him have it. You've had a situation where you're, you're raising your kids. Give me a, kind of an analogy here of why God, why God does this for us. I, mean, I remember when, when uh, my daughter Amy was a little girl, and she was riding her bike, and she fell off her bike, and she skinned her knee, right? You've all had kids that had, you know, these things happen to them. Any, any parent, any parent in their right mind, unless you're a complete narcissist, would gladly take the pain from that child onto themselves, right? If you've got somebody that you love, a child or a spouse or even a friend, and somebody's suffering, you would, and you, unless you are a narcissist, would gladly take that pain upon yourself. It's the same idea with Jesus, you see. He offers to take that from you and from me. And friends, this is why, this is why Jesus' inaugural act is his baptism. Because he came to earth not as a philosopher or a theologian or an ivory tower intellectual, political commentator, social advocate, military leader, spiritual guru. No. Christ came to earth to be a savior, to save you. And so here's the question. Do you, do you accept that? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to. You're not really quite sure if you do. Well, if that's the way you are, then you're in good company. Because the Bible assumes that we as humans are made in God's image, which explains why we know intuitively that, we're not, that everything's not right. Everything is not right with me, and everything is not right with you either. And the reason that is is because we're broken people. We are fallen sinners. And we all know this intuitively and intrinsically. We all know it's true. We all know we have got this existential guilt, don't we? This hole, this, this defect, a dent, whatever you want to call it, I don't care, that we all know needs to be fixed. How do you do it? Well, lots of people do it one of two ways. First thing people do oftentimes is they beat themselves up, right? They're guilt-ridden, they're shamed, they spend their entire lives trying to prove themselves, right? Work harder, work longer hours, run yourself ragged. Because you know that deep down inside, something's not right. And all that work never actually accomplishes the point, does it? Or what you might do if you recognize this existential guilt that you have is you beat up on other people, right? You alleviate your guilt and insecurity and your jealousy by tearing down others. I mean, how many times do we take just a little bit of pleasure in watching somebody, that, somebody fail? Well, the problem is neither of those two things work, friends. Every human being has this, this existential guilt, this hole, this dent, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. And beating ourselves up and beating up others does not solve the problem. It doesn't work. Why? Because it doesn't actually fix the problem. But see, whether it's personal success and striving or beating up on other people, neither of those things fixes the problem. Only Jesus says, only Jesus says, look, you can't fix this on your own. But I can, and I will. And at his baptism, Jesus offers us the glimpse of the gospel, the good news, which is simply this, that where you and I fail, Jesus succeeds as the only sinless, 
shameless, perfect human who ever lived. He willingly offers to take all of our trash onto his own perfect self, onto his body, and restore us to God through his death on the cross in our place. That's the good news. It alleviates the shame and guilt and allows us to live in community with God and one another. That's the good news. That is why Jesus' first action is to be baptized, to save you, because that's the good news, you see, that Jesus saves. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus, who in his first act of ministry identifies with us, takes our brokenness on himself in order to set us free. Help us to live lives of gratitude and joy and release and freedom for for this gift, this priceless gift. In his name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.